from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. The point of this season in Lent that we have been examining this year, the focus of our time in Lent this year, has been one chief understanding that the life of Jesus is mapped to the Christian life, the life of the Christian. That the things in the life of Jesus are so important to routinely visit that they shape the life of the Christian. In our time in Epiphany, we saw a great aspect of the teachings and the, re- the readings that we read in Epiphany being that Jesus did a miracle and in and around the miracle was doing a miracle. That is to say that he was doing something in the natural that was attending to something he also wanted to address in the spiritual. At this time in Luke's gospel, however, we do not see a miracle per se, but rather we see something of the life of Jesus that again radically marks Christian living. We must recognize the teachings of Jesus Christ as the manifestation of the nature of the Father. What do I mean by that? 
Jesus in this parable is warning those who are grumbling about these sinners coming to eat with him. He's warning them against their begrudging, hard-hearted rejection of the mercy of God, presuming that they do not know that they need that same mercy. This parable is revealing the nature of God as a God who is merciful and eager and ready to receive sinners. And yet these Pharisees, these legalists, these religious people have so twisted the understanding of who God is that they have put God so far beyond reality that they can't even see their need for him. That is to say, the Pharisees have made a completely separate God. Many times you'll hear, you know, Christians believe in the same God that the Muslims believe in or the Jews believe in. They're all monotheistic religions. I've said this a few times before. I will say it again. They are not monotheistic religions. They are not alike at all. Their conception of who the one true God is is completely other than what the conception of God is in Christianity. They are not monotheistic religions because they don't worship the one true God. They worship a figment. And Jesus here is dismantling the Jewish understanding that they had created that was not in accord with true Hebrew practice. The Pharisees are not in keeping with the traditions of the prophets. They have made their own traditions. In this parable, therefore, Jesus is saying that they have missed the point of who God is entirely. And in fact, Jesus writes this parable, he crafts this parable in such a way that he says both sons have missed the point. They both have squandered their relationship with the father. Both of these two boys, as we'll see today, see the father in this story as a mere means to an end. They want the father's things and they want to spend those things on themselves. So many of us have heard the prodigal son told over and over again, and we think the prodigal is the one who was really into the stuff, and the legalist or the elder brother was the one who was not into the stuff but really just wanted to work. But no, actually, this parable is a composite picture of two major approaches to life. The first major approach to life, the prodigal, is the living of life in revelry. That is, we have wanton disregard for God's laws. We engage in sins of the body. I like to think of these as sins of the body. Of course, they are sins of the soul as well, but they are sins we do with our bodies. We devour fleshly pleasures of sex and food and drugs and alcohol. These, of course, are experienced in the mind, and yet by the approach that the prodigal took, he did them with his body. Likewise, the legalist does things that are more sins of the soul, if you will. Of course, they're still sins of the body. We're not dividing unnecessarily between body and soul. But I just want to emphasize, these are the hidden sins. that can, They can come through church doors and not be seen with naked eyes or external eyes. These are the sins of the soul, spiritual pride, boasting, jealousy, thinking of yourself as better than someone else envy for someone else's things, even if it doesn't become outright theft. These two approaches to life are major ways of living. Of course, we can live in both camps, and indeed, all people everywhere have been in both camps. But these two boys are for us, by Jesus' design of this parable, major approaches to life. They are stand-ins, if you will, for the ways in which people live. All of us have experienced and lived out these two ways of living, and yet we miss the single common root of both of them. We, just like these two sons in this parable, are in need, we are in need of daily daily transformation to become those who live with God in love. All people everywhere regularly forget the point of life. All people everywhere regularly forget the point of life. The Westminster Catechism thunderously begins, what is the chief end of man? Why was man made? What is the purpose of life? Chief end is the Puritan speech for why, what's the point? Where do we go as people when we try to think of what's the point of life? We go to this, to glorify God 
and to enjoy him and to hearken to our brother Andy's emphasis to enjoy him fully. To enjoy God fully is the point of life. And we enjoy him so that we can glorify him. And both of these boys completely miss the point. One spends all his things to consume them. The other one never spends those things so that he can hold on to them. And yet he never actually tastes them. We both, we live rather in both of these patterns of life. Therefore, Jesus gives this parable to show us the two great failures in our approach to life and what the single remedy is, being loved by God so that we can love God. That is the point of this parable. Jesus is crafting a parable for these Pharisees who do not know God at all. They are like the legalist, the elder brother. He crafts this parable so that they might see they are just as bad as those sinners and tax collectors that they are grumbling against. To that end, I want to look at this passage in four aspects. First, that this entire parable is a warning against hypocrisy that Jesus Christ crafts with deep intention for his original audience, the Pharisees. And therefore, for we who hear today, it also is this, it, it has the same purpose. Jesus has crafted this parable not only for the Pharisees to hear and be warned against their own hypocrisy, but also that we would receive these words over the millennia, and that we too would be aided in our opposition against the sins of the soul that I'm talking about, pride, spiritual boasting, thinking of ourselves as great. I want to look then at the prodigal's descent into the unbridled, unleashed desire and where it takes him. I want to look then at the father's reception of this prodigal son who returns and how he lavishly pours out grace upon this son. And then finally, I want to look at this elder brother's dejection, that is, that he refuses to join into the party. Just as a warning as we move forward, some of you have heard this passage so often in your Christian walk that you think you know the point of this story and that you do not need to learn anything from it. Or you are so familiar with the details, you could probably preach the sermon. That doesn't mean that today and yesterday and tomorrow, you have been and will be living out what this passage says to do. Let me, let me put it a different way. We all, if you have been a Christian for more than a year, you have probably heard this parable. And therefore, you know in your mind, the details of this story. Some of those details you may not have seen. But seeing the details and knowing the story without God the Spirit transforming your heart to show you that you have been both the prodigal and the legalist will keep you from the destiny of God in your life. God wants to, by His Spirit, transform His people into those sorts of people who love them with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. And one of the ways he does that, the chief way that he does that, is through his spirit applying the word and applying familiar passages afresh. And so we are asking, I'm asking, that God the Spirit would come now and, and take us through a passage that we are so prone to dismiss because it's so common to us, and that he would show us how we have played the part of both of these two boys. Jesus in his earthly ministry is manifesting the grace of God such that those who were trapped in sin are drawn to him. These tax collectors and sinners who came to the Lord at this account did so because he received them. He did this even while their social status remained unchanged. Notice they're called by Luke that tax collectors and sinners come. These are people who are notorious sinners. These are people who are known in the community as being problems to the community. We think in our world today of prostitutes and the term which I actually hate, Johns, the, the people who go to the prostitutes. The reason the police use that phrase is because John is one of the most common English names. They use that phrase to say, everybody does this. We think of these people in our world today just like in Jesus' context, as notorious sinners. 
it is important to recognize Jesus somehow attracted these people. He wasn't advertising to them. They wanted to come and be with him. Jesus, I believe the reason for this attraction is that Jesus spoke of God with such holy regard that those who had been chasing after false pleasures were now getting a taste of the real, real pleasure through Jesus' speech. That Jesus spoke of the Father with such holy delight, such high regard, such esteem, that those who were trapped in sin recognized the fragrance of reality and that they streamed to him. And therefore, his reception of them socially at this time is a demonstration, an outward demonstration of the grace of Christ, which is applied to the soul. That is to say, what he did in the natural, just like we saw in Epiphany, what he did in the natural was a picture of what he was going to do in the spiritual. Just as he received in table fellowship these wicked people, rightly called wicked, notorious sinners, demonstrates how those come to Christ. They come to Christ because they leave behind the sins of the flesh, and they come to the Lord Jesus, and they eat with him instead. That's kind of the whole point of this parable. It's all about food, if you will. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. The Pharisees do not see themselves as sinners, and so they believe that Jesus errs by extending table fellowship to them. You might recognize that phrase, table fellowship. That's the name of our group of churches, and the reason for that name is the recognition of the diversity of the experience of Christianity among our churches, and yet we recognize the common reality. As we said in our creed, there is one faith, there is one baptism. We recognize one spirit who works this transformation. The Pharisees are often decried as evil in the Gospels, and yet for all their mention in church readings and in sermons, we often don't know much about them. I think it would be helpful for us to take a moment to remember what the Pharisees were. Phariseeism at the time of Jesus Christ was a reformed movement. It was, by that I'm not saying it's the Puritan reformed or the, the continental reform. I mean, it was an attempt to reform the moral practice of Israel at the time of Christ. The Pharisees saw the occupation of Rome in Palestine or in Israel as being God's judgment against Israel's rejection of keeping the law. The Pharisees, therefore, wanted to receive God's blessing, and so they elevated the keeping of the law to the highest place of moral duty for the Israelite. They wrestled away the point of the law from showing a need for Christ, as Paul teaches, to being a means to establish one's righteousness. Therefore, because they recognized the keeping of the law as the supreme moral duty of an Israelite, the Pharisees eschewed all social interaction with those who were notorious sinners. They had two reasons for doing this. One, first, for a good reason, for fear of corruption. Paul tells us, indeed, that bad company does corrupt good morals. Yes and amen. However, the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned, ate and drank with sinners. The first fear was a misguided fear. The second fear also was misguided, that they would be seen to be somehow approving of the behavior of the people that they ate with. This was Phariseeism in a nutshell. The Pharisees, in essence, required the transformation of a sinner to be affected and experienced before they could have table fellowship with those who were righteous. Those who are antinomian in their approach to these readings, that is, those who see no point to the law of God, will say that the Pharisees were just doing what Moses was doing. Brothers and sisters, that could not be the case at all. Jesus says, do not come to think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, to put it into force, to accomplish it, and to allow those who come after me to accomplish it by the Spirit. Jesus did not diminish the importance of the law, but rather continued to rebuke the Pharisees of twisting the law. Therefore, Jesus directly addresses the hypocrisy of the Pharisees by telling these parables in Luke 15. 
Jesus has crafted this parable with deep intention. He has one desire for the purpose of moral teaching to show that the Pharisees are truly like this elder brother in their calloused and legalistic thinking. Because we know Jesus is responding to their grumbling about his reception of sinners, we understand that it is right for us to interpret these symbols as being extremely intentional in their selection. That is to say, Jesus was not recounting a real event. I hope you understand this. There are different genres in the scriptures. The story of the prodigal son did not actually happen. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, nor should it disturb your faith. Jesus is not telling a story like I would tell the story of how I got ready for church this morning. He's crafted a story, and he's put in place details and characters to have a moral point, to have a teaching that shows something higher than what a real just retelling of an event would have. This isn't history. This is a parable. That's the, that's the reason they're called parables. He's crafting this parable, carefully selecting certain things in the story to bring out a spiritual meaning of what he's trying to address in the Pharisees' lives. As Jesus continues to teach that day, he told a parable of a man with two sons. We often call this the parable, parable of the prodigal son, that is the wasteful son, the spendthrift son. And yet, this parable contains three main characters. Though it contains three main characters, I believe that it primarily focuses on the father and his gracious love for each of these two sons and each of these two sons' rejection and dismissal of the love of the father for them. We see this at the beginning of his parable. In verse 11, it says, And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The younger brother here is asking for what would be given at the father's death or at the time of his departure from his father's household. The act of dividing the family inheritance also truly divides this story into two main halves. I want you to picture this, that, that this younger son asks the father to divide the inheritance, and therefore this division is the central aspect to the parable that we have to understand. Both of these two main halves of the parable, the prodigal's descent and return and the elder brother's dejection, even though he remained physically, both of these two halves of the story are focused upon what the father does to his sons. Although the younger brother asked for the inheritance, it's important to note that the elder brother also received it. The words say that the father divided it between his two sons. Soon after this, the younger departs from the father. As Proverbs 18:1 says, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. This younger brother had no desire to be with his father. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who had sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." The younger brother in his descent experiences the unmitigated fullness of the fruit of his sin. There are times where God, because of his grace for one of his elect, will refuse to allow them to experience the full fruit of their sin. That is, the judgment of God against sin, the curse that follows the committing of transgressions, is often prevented by God. And yet, in this story... We see that this prodigal son, this younger brother, receives no barriers. There is no common grace between his sin and the effect of his sin. It's important to note all of the biblical imagery that Jesus uses to describe the wickedness and the fruit of that wickedness in the son. First of all, his journey into a far country is clear biblical imagery for being carried off into exile. 
However, he's not like Israel was carried off into exile by a foreign army, but rather his own desires for pleasure carry him away from the land of his upbringing and the land of his family. Preachers will commonly use a a very quippy phrase, sin will carry you farther than you intended to go and keep you there for longer than you intended to stay and cost more than you intended to pay. And as quippy as that phrase is, that is exactly what happens to the prodigal. He's driven into the wilderness, spiritually speaking, because of what he wants. He chose to go into exile. It was his free choice. His squandering of his property in reckless living is a full imbibing of transgressions against God's law. This squandering in reckless living is Luke's way of recording Jesus' words with some politeness, because we'll see later what the elder brother says about this wanton living or or reckless living. When the famine arises, he is reaping a biblical curse against transgressions. In the midst of this curse, he sells himself into the slavery of bondage. Curse, exile, bondage. Working with the pigs, he becomes, according to the law of God, ceremonially unclean and unable to come into the temple. He's defiled. As having nothing to eat, he wishes to steal food so that he could eat, but not food fit for a man, food only fit for the unclean animals. Finally, as we see that no one gives him anything, he becomes an outcast and is beyond the pity of his neighbors. Probably one of the most important moments of my life, I was in the city of San Francisco, and I was walking with some friends to a tech conference. If you've never been to San Francisco, it's a a very dirty city. It has a deep issue with homelessness. It's, I don't think it's a great place to go. I hope that that city is redeemed. Nevertheless, when I was in San Francisco, I experienced poverty briefly for what was the most extreme taste of it I've ever had in my life. There was a man who was drunk sitting in his own waist at the corner of an intersection and people were quite literally walking over him and on top of him. This is how deep of a depression this particular man that I saw in San Francisco was in and so addicted to the thing that he craved for that he was being reduced in his humanity, and he was a shell of a man. This is what happens to the prodigal. He was so destitute and so poor and so broken and so ravaged by the fruit of his own sin that no one gave him anything. He had so broken every social and familial bond of love that no one gave him any pity at all. Truly, this prodigal son hits, as it says in the common phrases, rock bottom. As the prodigal son comes to his senses, he only does so because he remembers his father's gracious treatment of his servants. This is why I say the the parable is really supposed to be focusing on the heart of the father. The prodigal son, in the moment of his destitution and descent, in the moment of his weakness, remembers how his father treated his servants. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Note this, treat me as one of your hired servants. The prodigal at this moment in the parable does indeed have a sense of his shame and failure, but he does not have any sense to the full extent of what he lost when he left his father. He has come in this moment to a recognition of his current state, which to be true is an act of grace by God itself. We are never fully aware of the destitution of our soul unless God himself is beginning to draw us to himself. That is to say, it's an act of God's grace that we even recognize our need for God. But however, at this point, it is very important to note that the reason for the prodigal's desire to return to his father is not to come back to the father. It's because he's hungry. 
He doesn't want to come back to the Father for the Father's sake. He says, and he says his reasonings to us in Jesus' telling of this parable, even the servants of my Father have more bread than I do. I'll go back to get bread. He doesn't miss the Father's presence at all. He misses the Father's food. He isn't being delivered from his sin at this moment. Those who who maintain semi-Pelagian views of salvation commonly cite this passage as, see, the prodigal returned. Brothers and sisters, the prodigal does not return for the right reasons. He says, the servants in my father's house get bread, and I don't even get bread here. I'll just go and become a servant. I know that my father treats his servants well. He doesn't want to become a son again. He wants to stay a servant. He wants to just keep filling up his hunger. He doesn't recognize the reality of his state. In a sense, the prodigal's confession is true. Sinning against heaven always leads to destruction upon the earth. The descent of his state was due to his disregard for God's ways. He dishonored his father, and therefore he did indeed fall under the curse of the law. In Deuteronomy 5, 16, it says, Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and here it is, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What does he do? He dishonors his father. In essence, he says, I wish you were dead. Give me the money that you have to give to me. The father acquiesces, and then he's immediately taken out of the land. Deuteronomy 15, 16 was fulfilled in the prodigal's descent. Sinning against heaven is code for sinning against God. The Jews often would not say God. They would say heaven instead. For example, the kingdom of heaven is like a... They would substitute heaven for God. And truly, submission to heaven grants authority on the earth. And therefore, his rebellion against God's ways leads to the bearing of fruit of the curse in his life. It is true what the prodigal says, he is no longer worthy to be called a son, for he has indeed stolen an inheritance. That is, he's taken it before the time. Nevertheless, he, like the elder brother, wishes to be a servant, not a son. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Amazingly, however, the father receives him even while he was still a long way off. Remember, this is not a story that actually happened. And so the fact that the father is looking on the horizon waiting for the son's return is not a perplexing detail. How did that happen? It rather is, the, is expressed by Jesus to say something about the mercy of God. This father is looking for and longing for this prodigal's return, somehow sensing that this would be the day, and somehow by chance looking at the horizon to see his son and to recognize him at a great distance when he was still a long way off. In essence, the father runs into the far country and receives the, elder, the younger brother back to himself. It's also interesting to note that before the prodigal makes it back, not only does the father run to him, but in the middle of his litany of repeating the confession that he had rehearsed, the father interrupts him as soon as he says he is unworthy. He is prevented, it's important to note, he is prevented from asking to be treated like one of the servants. See, he he rehearses his confession, and then he has an appeal at the end of his confession, and he says, let me be treated as one of your servants. I'm no longer worthy to become your son. Let me be treated as one of your servants. And the father immediately interrupts him. He doesn't get to repeat that part. You have to notice this. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. His father fully receives him upon his simple return and confession. The father here adorns him with gifts of favor and delight. This robe that gets placed upon this prodigal son is very reminiscent of, of Jacob's coat, uh, Joseph's coat rather, that he receives from Jacob, Jacob's coat that he gives to his son to adorn his favored boy. This prodigal son who has wasted all of his father's life savings receives all the privileges, authority, and affections that could be bestowed. There was nothing else that the father had that he could have given to show externally the reception of the prodigal return, prodigal's return that he accomplished internally. The grace of this father in the story is seen in this. It is if it is as if his son never left. Not only does the son return, he receives everything that he could possibly have received to to be shown affection and favor. And not only is he the son who's never left, it is much greater than that, biblically speaking. Better yet, better than the son who never left, now he is the son who was dead and is raised to life. Following the biblical arc of the themes of death, resurrection, and glorification, these people, the father, the son, and the servants, celebrate as those who have been reunited and now can never be divided again. The whole point of the parable was, divide for me everything you've got. I'll take my half, my brother can have his half, I'll go and spend it. He loses it all, returns, and receives it all. And never can he leave again because of the love of this father. As we turn to the elder brother, however, who never left, we find a startling picture of a bitter son who refuses to join the celebration. In verse 25, we read, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound." This elder brother has somehow missed the reunion. It seems that he's preoccupied with work in the field. His conversation and all of his dealings that he has are out in the field with the other servants, outside of the house, spending time with those who work for their bread. Remember what, what the, the younger brother said? Even the servants have bread. And so this elder brother is seen in the context of this return as not being in the party. He's out working. This other servant has somehow heard the news and therefore to the elder son calls the prodigal your brother. The reason for this celebration is not that the elder, the younger brother has returned, but rather this, the father has received him back safe and sound. The party was because of the reception, not because of the prodigal's return. The prodigal's return was part of the story, but the reason for the celebration is because he's safe and sound. The father has received him back. Therefore, the elder brother's presence outside the feast, though at first in the story is symbolic, then becomes to be seen as full of substance as he refuses to go in. At first, he's outside the party, and we could read into that, and we ought to, but then we recognize the reason he's outside isn't just because he loves to be with the servants and is living like a servant, as we'll see in a minute, but he refuses to join the celebration. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Just as the father ran toward the prodigal son, now he comes out to reconcile the elder brother, but the elder brother will not have it at all. The, elder's bro- the elder brother's speech here reveals his heart. He has lived like a servant to the father. These many years I have served you, just as the younger brother wished. 
But this is a diminishing of who the father is. Just as the prodigal runs away from the father and spends his money on himself, this elder brother who stays also has diminished who the father is by not living like a son, but being content to be a servant who works for his own bread. He says of himself that he never disobeyed your command. You see, the Pharisees would have clearly held themselves to be the keepers of the law, not only the maintainers of the scrolls, but the ones who try to do them. And yet this elder brother is clearly engaging in self-deception. This is not true perfection, it's imagination. How could he never disobey the father's command when he doesn't even know the heart of his father at all? The elder brother may indeed have never disobeyed the external commands, go work in this field, go build that barn, go repair this flock. But this elder brother certainly does not know the heart of his father. The father has the chief unspoken desire of longing for true relationship with the elder brother, with his eldest son. This elder brother delights in the father's uh, presence Uh, This elder brother does not delight in the father's presence at all, and yet that is the chief desire of the father. He says to the elder brother, answering his objection. As the elder brother expresses his complaint, we see that he is just like the younger brother. Both of these boys, as I have said at the beginning and want to reiterate, both of these boys just want the father's stuff. As he said he longed for a goat, he says that I might celebrate with my friends. He doesn't want to celebrate with the father. He's just like the prodigal. He doesn't care about the father. He's just jealous that the prodigal got the fatted calf. He says, I would have settled for a goat. (laughs) The fatted calf... We, we, again, these are phrases we hear so often. The fatted calf was a special piece of livestock that was reserved for the highest of occasions, the wedding of the eldest son or the wedding of any of the sons or the daughters or, or the birth of the first grandchild or the receiving of an inheritance or the deliverance of a city and a benefactor might bring a, a calf to be slaughtered and to be, to be used in the feast. The fatted calf was reserved for the greatest thing that could happen of those few years. To fatten a calf takes a great amount of care and intention and, and, and desire. You set it aside for a special moment. It is much greater than a bottle of wine that you reserve for special occasions or flowers that you might go and get and decay over a week. The fatted calf was the highest gift that you could have. It was nigh to gold. You can't eat gold, but you can eat a fatted calf. My wife and I bought a quarter of a cow a few months ago, and we've eaten all of it. And um, I, when, when Ned Berube was here the last time, we had him over for dinner, and we, I spent about 30 minutes reading online how to cook filet mignon, not to butcher it, because you get four of them, And if you mess them up, you've wasted the point of that cow, so to speak. It is the the best, most tender choice. It actually doesn't have a lot of marbling, so the fattened part isn't important here. But But it is a muscle that never gets moved. The reason the filet mignon is valuable is it's in it's in a place in the cow that doesn't do hard work. But when you have a fattened calf, none of the cow does hard work. All of it is filet mignon. (laughs) This was the best possible dinner that these people could have ever had. They probably experienced this a singular number of times. You could count them on one hand, the number of times that they got to participate in a meal. And the elder brother is bitter that they slaughtered the fatted calf. In this elder brother's bitterness, he goes to extreme lengths to avoid calling the prodigal my brother, but instead says, this son of yours. The elder brother has disowned his brother and refuses to receive him back. 
The phrase, this son of yours, is a strange and tortuous turn of phrase. It's hard to say and it's weird to hear. And you've got to, when you hear it, you have to say, this son of yours. Which one? You know, it, the bitterness of this elder son is pouring forth in all of his objection. He then calls to mind this prodigal's promiscuity, and he is speaking like the accuser. He's reminding of sins passed over. The elder son is not just a legalist, he's a son of Satan. He's doing what his father, the devil, does. He's bringing back to mind sins that have already been forgiven. Complaining that the father father even killed the fatted calf, he goes further and impugns the father's character, saying it was wrong for the father to celebrate. The father then answers with the chief objection being this. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father's central response answers the chief problem in both of his son's sins. Both equally fail to understand the importance of who the father is. Neither of them want to be with the father And yet he constantly is bringing them back to himself. To the prodigal, he receives him. He embraces him. He puts a robe upon him. He bestows him with the authority of the signet ring. He gives him shoes where he had none. He adorns and glorifies this resurrected and now alive again prodigal. And for the elder brother, the father goes to him likewise and says, the chief issue with you is that you don't understand me. He answers all the objections, and he begins by answering, son, you're always with me. Your your, your prodigal brother, he wasn't with us, and now he's returned, and you've never left, so to speak. And yet we see through the elder brother's speech, through his refusal to enter into the party, the elder brother never left, but he was never actually there. The elder brother wanted the things, and the father moved squarely back to the primacy of his presence and to the return of his other brother. What has taken place in the prodigal son is nothing less than the resurrection of the dead. As I said at the beginning, both of these two brothers represent a misguided orientation to life. These are two grand dispositions. We can and do indeed move from one paradigm to the other, but these are two major paradigms of living. These are two major approaches to life. Like the prodigal son, those who are chasing after bodily pleasure are filling up their souls with emptiness. You must recognize that there will be an end to the number of meals that you eat in this life. You must recognize, I remember this in my first year of marriage, realizing we will both get old and our marital intimacy will drain. And there are a finite number of times in which I can experience the bliss of covenantal marriage. It will never be infinite, brothers and sisters. And even if it was infinite, it will never be enough. No amount of sex can sustain the satisfaction that the soul requires. No matter how many friends you have, they will all die. They will all grow old and you will be at the end of your days left with nothing. What will you retain in those moments? Eventually, all that you can see, smell, hear, taste, or touch will fade, either in your resolution of the experience or through the simple mundane repetition of familiarity. If you've ever been able to afford something that you used to only be able to have once in a while, you may have experienced this. I now have many things in my life like this where when I was younger, I thought, when I get to be an adult and can buy, I'll buy this every day. (laughs) And the third time I had it, it was pointless because nothing can fulfill Nothing in this life can ultimately fulfill the constant demand for soul-refreshing joy. As wrong as the prodigal's hedonistic approach is to imbibing everything, the legalist's stoicism is just as evil. Like the elder brother, there are those who earn, who seek to earn a materially blessed life 
through moral behavior, and therefore they elevate God's blessings above God himself. It is true that God's laws express his ways, and that accordance with his ways or living in accord with his ways will bring a measure of common external blessing in life. In Proverbs 10.22, however, it says that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Brothers and sisters, it is a great curse to become rich and to not have Proverbs 10.22 take place at the same time. To serve God merely to receive things is to be an idolater. The approach to Christ, which comes to Christ so that your life can be put back together externally, although it may be a good beginning desire, you recognize the fruit of your sin, it can never sustain a lifelong walk with Christ. The chief deliverance for the legalist is not getting a blessed life that is finally removed, finally has all the pains and, and circumstances removed. No, the chief blessing is to know God. Legalistic living, seeking a blessing, is just as prodigal as living for pleasure. That is to say, it's a wanton disregard of the delight of knowing God. The prodigal son squandered money on himself. The legalistic elder brother squandered the father's presence so that he could earn his keep. Approaching God, therefore, by seeking to earn his favor by your obedience will leave you just like the elder brother, shut out of the eternal banquet with the father. You will be out there with the servants and you will be bitter while you see prodigal after prodigal come in to the kingdom of God. The only way to live is to come, therefore, to Jesus Christ for healing and transformation. At the beginning, I mentioned this phrase, all people everywhere regularly forget the point of life. And that is to glorify God and enjoy Him. And for some of you, you think, how does this sermon relate to me? I'm already a Christian. I've already run back that prodigal road and have come to the Father. Some of you, however, are living like the prodigal today. Others of you are living like the elder brother. And as I said at the beginning, and want to reiterate, we all experience both of these boys' ways of life and the central sin that they had. The parable, therefore, is given by Christ to show these two great failures in our approach to life and what the remedy is. Being loved by God so that we can love God. This is equally applicable to those who have never come to Christ, never placed their hope in Christ, and those who claim to be in Christ and are walking out their faith in Christ. We always need the message of the prodigal and the elder brother to come back over and over again that we would not forget the point of the parable. It's to be with God. That is the chief point of this parable. So my calling to you this morning is this, as those who have played both the younger and the elder brother, let us renounce wanton living and legalism and delight in our presence with the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a kind and gracious God, that your free offer of pardon is extended to prodigals and to legalists alike. We thank you that you have not left us in our bitterness outside of the banquet, but that you invite us routinely, just as this father went out to the elder brother, that you, routine, you routinely invite us and remind us to be reconciled. We pray, therefore, that you would do a great work this morning and this week, that by your spirit, you would transform us into those who love to be with you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.